Happy Friday, everyone. I'm Chad, and you are listening to Mission Daily, your number one source for accelerated learning, good news, super friends, and as always, a daily mission. I know you didn't get a daily mission at the end of last episode. I'm sorry. We're bringing it back. It's coming back strong in today's episode, and we're going to try to keep doing that as we go forward in every episode. Help us out with that by giving us some feedback. Do you like them? Do you not like them? Uh, We've got some crazy ideas for them in the future, as well as ideas for super friends and good news, expanding that segment and so much more. This experiment in changing up the format of Mission Daily has been awesome so far. I've received a lot of wonderful messages. So thanks so much for reaching out and letting us know what you like, what you don't like, and generally how we can make this show serve you and how can we help you mediate the future that you want and how can we send those ripples out there that mediate a more voluntary, beautiful human evolution and flourishing for everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Now let's jump into today's episode with Liz Weissman, part two. There's just this baggage, I think, that we we all carry and we're each on our own journey of shedding that baggage as quickly as possible. But the ultimate fear is, you know, we're going to shed it and who we are isn't going to be good enough or, you know, we're going to be humiliated or we're going to be not able to participate, I guess, if we show people who we are. Why do you think? Well, I'm fascinated by what you said, like the assault on our minds from the media. Yeah. I haven't really thought of it that way. I thought more about like, how do we process and stay focused? But I do think like our minds have been under attack as everyone is competing for the eyeballs, the mind space. And, and that's really, it's interesting to think that that is a battleground, like competing for our attention. And we're having, we've been, yeah, I think maybe we're tired of having to fight to stay so focused like to fend off everyone who wants, you know, a piece of me. It's funny. Um, Chad, one of the things I say when I get really kind of selfish and, and I always say it to my mom, like maybe because I don't really <laughs> want other people to know that I'm this selfish is I, I always say like when I'm overwhelmed, I'm like, mom, everyone just wants something from me. Like everyone wants like a piece of me. I feel like I'm under attack by bumblebee stings. That's usually what I say. Sure. Because I feel like if there's just this little tugs here and there, I'm being pulled in so many different directions. But I think we all have been, had our attention pulled in so many different directions. Yeah. And the directions I think that we're being pulled, pushed, coerced into going are these very weird, you think in a, a decade or maybe a couple of decades, we're as a culture just going to look back at how absurd it is that a lot of the the news and entertainment media and everything, it was just this, you know, pretty basic call to worship different idols and different cults of celebrity that were leading nowhere. So cults in a sense of these groups and institutions were a dead end that didn't have any redeeming value as opposed to there isn't that much media out there designed for the philosophically inclined or those looking to build or join or participate in culture building. So, you know, a group of people that is whether they're right about more things than they're wrong about. And 
this hunger for culture and community is going to just, I think, wash away most of the old media that's kind of just predicated on this. Okay, we've got to divide everybody and then we've got to make sure that, you know, people like this person over that person and these people are arguing. So we'll fill that in their narrative. And the results of it are just selfishness. Yeah. I mean, it just ends up in these like selfish loops, you know, where people can get isolated from reality. And, you know, I say I say this as somebody who's emerged from that self-isolating loop, pretty disoriented. And, you know, I found solace in reading and seeking out cultures that were right about something and right about more things than they were wrong about. And I've just, uh, you know, I've never looked back. And I think that there's so many people out there now that are craving that same type of thing. You know, the image that came to me as you were talking about that, and it was so fascinating that you use this word isolation. When you talk about pursuing this kind of like cult of personality and this, this media, I just kept thinking of this imagery of dead ends and of a maze. And I was thinking of like a big corn maze where you're just going down all these dead ends. And I don't like going in those mazes. And it brings out this like panic feeling of being unable to find your way out right. and like being alone, like everyone else is finding their way out, but I'm, I'm stuck here. And, but yeah, I love those mazes when I go through like with my kids and they'll stay with me and, and like, we're going through it together and we're finding a path through. And that's just this contrast I got hearing you say that it's the difference between being alone in a dead end path versus like with other people in pursuit of something that is meaningful, like something that has a path and a, an exit. Um, yeah. And that's, I, I love that uh, example. And I'm, I'm right there with you. Those mazes can get pretty, pretty creepy uh, if you're by yourself. When we think about those paths and you think about your own path, Liz, there are times on all of these paths where it can feel dark, it can feel disorienting, or maybe you can just you know, lose your way a little bit. Uh, when you find yourself in those moments, I'm curious, what has your path been for getting out or pushing through those and kind of getting yourself back on the, the course of, you know, being on that journey with family and friends looking for the exit? Well, I'm thinking about times where I've lost my way. And, you know, I'll tell you about a time I, you know, I had, for me, this is a very spiritual issue and it's about I mean, you started the woo-woo, Chad, so I'm going to go on the woo-woo thing. Like, for me, this is about my identity. And, you know, I am a a person of faith, and I have a relationship with God. I feel like um, sort of in, in seeing, kind of using the parlance of today, like I feel both seen and heard by God. Like, I feel known by God. Like, you know, a lot of times we think of spirituality as, as by coming to know God or Jesus Christ, you know, however you you define that. But I feel like it's also that feeling of being known. And, and I think because of that, I feel like I've had spiritual guidance that has warned me not to pursue a path of worldly success. And I, it's not that I've taken a vow of poverty. I certainly haven't. Um, I've always had this very clear spiritual sense that I was to pursue a path of contribution and that for me, that it was okay to want to be successful, but not the way that the world defines success, but a way that I felt 
like a joy in contributing and a joy in serving and, and in helping. And I feel like I've known that my whole adult life. And so it's helped me to navigate that. But there have been times where I have um, spent time with people who, for whom that wasn't true for them. And I remember one time I hired someone into my firm and I was telling a good buddy of mine, a friend named Ben Putterman, who I had, I've worked with Ben for years. And I was telling Ben that I was really excited to have this person join my team because he was really ambitious. You know, like, you know how ambitious people are kind of exciting to be around because they're talking about like, oh, here's all these like big things we're going to do and we're going to make this a bestseller. And then this is going to be like the number one podcast and this is going to be this and that we're going to grow and, you know, have a equity event. And it sounds kind of exciting. And, and he was this way and very exciting. And I was like, oh, wow, this is so not me. And what a great compliment. And it seemed attractive. And I mentioned it to my buddy, Ben, and he's like, I don't know, Liz, that doesn't seem like a very good idea to me. And I'm like, what does Ben know? You know? <laughs> and, and I'm like, he's just jealous. And, and so I, I kind of went down that path and it never felt right. And I feel like I got twisted up a little bit. And I think like when I was at peak lost on that path. Um, it was when I was, uh, I just published my second book. So my first book, Multipliers, there was this temptation to want to like do a bestseller sort of like push and like really see if I can get on the bestseller list. And, and I decided not to do it because it just didn't feel right. And it turned out that the book made it onto the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And I was like, so excited. It was nothing Congrats. I ever expected. Well, thanks. But then with the second book, Rookie Smarts, I'm like, ooh, that one made the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Then shouldn't this one make the New York Times bestseller list? Like, that would be cool. Like, that would be ambitious. And so I set about to do that and, you know, like, okay, let me go and, you know, do these campaigns and let's, you know, try to put out stuff on social media and hold these, like, webinars, but, you know, all the stuff that people do. And we did everything right. And it was just that week that the New York Times changed their criteria for hitting the New York Times bestseller list. And despite the fact that the book had sold all this blah, 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 it should, I think, ended up like number five on the list based on the volumes of books sold in that time period. It didn't. And I was so disappointed and I think I saw that news, got on an airplane, flew home. And by the time I had gotten off the airplane, I just felt so liberated from this. I'm like, wow. I went from, man, it sucks to have failed at that, to what was I thinking? Like, that's not important. You know, the importance is the impact of the work and knowing you've done good work and that it's made a difference. And it's perfectly fine for those things to follow. But I had actually chased the success rather than the impact. And, and, you know, unfortunately, it was for a brief time because I really, I shook it off. I reoriented myself and said, wow, like what I just did trying to make that happen wasn't me. Like my buddy Ben was right. He's always been right. He says, Liz, that's that like whole ambition thing. It's not you. It's not why you've been successful. And I just really let it go. And then... It was interesting. 
I guess I'm trying to like fast forward maybe two or three years, I'm re-releasing a second edition of Multipliers. And uh, one of my buddies who, who works with me today, he's like, all this, you know, let's see if we can get this onto the New York Times bestseller list as a second edition. It's it's not unheard of for a second edition, but it's really, really rare. And so we got all like working to do that and like, okay, let's put out some marketing. Let's really get the word out. You know, let's tell our clients about this. And at one point it had my team. So our team, he was, he was on the team as well. It had our team so twisted up that I finally said to him, I'm like, you know, I really, really appreciate what you're doing, trying to get the word out. I said, but it's hurting us. And so I just need you to back off. This is a different person, by the way, um, gotcha. who doesn't, you know, he, he's not someone who really kind of is like tied up with ambition. He, he kind of wanted to do this for me in some way. And, and I just said, you know what, my good friend, I like, I need you to stop. And this was maybe two or three weeks before the book was released. I'm like, it's just not worth it. Cause I could see, I'm getting lost again. I'm out there chasing things that don't really matter. And, and so I kind of like shed a little tear, you know, I don't know that I actually shed a tear, but it was like this little moment of loss of like, oh yeah, that would have actually been pretty cool. But I just, I gave it up. And what was amazing is like three weeks later, I get a call from my, my literary agent and she's like, Liz, I just wanted to call and tell you that the book made the New York Times bestseller list. I love it. Oftentimes when we give, give up something when it happens. Yeah, because I had, like, I hadn't, like, this wasn't a reverse psychology moment where I was right. like, oh, please, whatever you do, don't get the word out about the book. <laughs> you know, don't throw me in the prayer patch. Yeah. It was truly like, no, I'm giving this up because it's not important. And yet it just sort of happened and it happened organically. And like, for me, that's when I get lost and twisted up and like alone in the maze where I seek outward validation rather than just that inward affirmation that you're doing the work you're supposed to be doing. You're doing it the way you should be. And, and you're really like, for me, doing it in a godly way. Like, no, this is, this is who God made me to be. Right. I'm just doing my thing. That's it. Nothing more, but also nothing less. I love that. Yeah. And again, back to that balance of, you know, trying to become that conduit of, uh, yeah, good works and, um, putting good works out there. Liz, this is, uh, that's been a really, really cool story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, when you are thinking about Silicon Valley and when you're thinking about the future of Silicon Valley, are there any things that you see happening now that are really positive or any trends that you think are under the radar that more people need to be aware of? Well, it's strange. I feel so disconnected to what's happening in Silicon Valley. I think we're seeing um, some big changes in how people lead. But, but, you know, I don't, like, what is fundamentally changing in Silicon Valley? You know, the dark side of Silicon Valley is very real. I think there's a lot of people who have put great packaging on what is fundamentally greed. And I think it's been hurting us. I don't know that it's changing. Do you see that changing? Not in the traditional media and not on the surface level. However, one of the folks that I'm 
very excited about who is going to be joining our team soon is uh, he describes it as a card carrying member of the Silicon Valley underground and the Silicon Valley underground, meaning a lot of the folks who, whether their origins in technology go back to like ARPANET or the well, uh, one of the first social networks or um, being very early at a number of technology companies when the movement and when the ideals were pure or purer. Mm -hmm. This is so fascinating to me because that subculture has managed to survive and evolve in what I think is a very healthy direction. And in a sense, the fringe culture of the post 1960s, 70s and 80s in Silicon Valley has matured and become this, what I see as um, a healthy Petri dish for really exciting new projects and new experiments and new models for companies and teams that the world needs. I don't see the traditional VC treadmill producing the same type of transformational companies that got us here. I'm kind of questioning that model because I don't know if it's going to continue to work in the future. And what I do think is going to work are maybe a handful of these folks from the the Silicon Valley underground and uh, definitely some in- investors. There's going to be capital involved there. There usually is. I see that them kind of coming together in a new renaissance. And so this mm-hmm. is like the the trend or the current that I've, or the scene that I've tried to immerse myself in. Yeah. Just really st- study the origins of how did we get here and how are we going to get back to the future in the most voluntary way for, for everyone involved? Yeah. Sort of that original intent of the true pure technologist yeah. versus the Johnny come lately and hey, you know what? It looks like uh, maybe it's the 40, 49er spirit of that gold rush of, hey, look what's happening in technology. Let's sort of go there and see if we can, you know, can sort of uh, strike it rich. Right in Silicon Valley. And I think, I don't know that that dynamic of let's go to Silicon Valley and strike it rich, but I do see that there are some of those original thinkers and technologists who are doing great things. I mean, the one that comes to mind for me is, is Mark Benioff and people like Mark Benioff. You know, I grew up with Mark at Oracle and, you know, I've seen him evolve as a leader. I'm a, I'm a big fan of him as a leader, not just because what he's done at Salesforce, but because of how, how far he's come from his days at Oracle, where he was like really learning to lead. And, you know, I see the things that he's doing with technology, the problems that they're trying to solve, um, just even watching how he's tried to rally support you know, in the current COVID-19 crisis. And sure. and from where I stand, that looks like the kind of leadership we need in technology, um, you know, what can be done with technology, but also the kind of workplaces that we need to create where people can be whole people, as we just talked about. I think Salesforce is a really, really a shining example of that. Definitely. Yeah, I pick up the same vibes. And uh, the best part, I think, is there are so many people now that seem to be following the thread of this, whatever you want to call it, you know, aware culture or this uh, culture of acceptance. And it's a great time to be exploring this and getting involved and uh, interacting in these spaces. And from, you know, speaking 
from my shoes, I'm somebody that grew up in a small town in Western Maryland. And when we came out here to Silicon Valley three and a half years ago or so, these were just uh, all foreign concepts to me. Just had no experience with them and only knew about them in words, not through direct experience. And it's one of those things that you can't really explain until you get the direct experience of being on a team or working with people or, you know, having some of these in-depth in-person conversations that are just really, really game-changing. So yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but <laughs> for whatever it's worth, there you uh, go. Chad, your question has helped me clarify my thinking on this. I think one of the things that is changing is that people aren't looking at technology and seeing it is inherently good. I think there was a phase where it's like, oh, look at all the good that's being done in the world with technology. I think we wisened up to this and we realize that technology is neither good nor evil. It's it's simply a tool in somebody's hand. It's a weapon. Sure. And you know, that 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 weapon or that tool can be used for good or it can be used for terrible evils that are done with technology. And I, I think we are getting wiser about that. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I think that everyone is kind of open up to this idea that with great power comes great responsibility. And these tools that let us do more with less amplify our natures, right? So the question is, what are our natures? And, you know, why are we building these tools? So uh, Liz, thank you so much for being generous with your time today. We'll have to have you back on, hopefully in studio again soon. The final thing we'd like to leave our listeners with is a daily mission. So a challenge to go out into the world and do one small thing to send out a ripple of positivity, of change, of uh, just improving their lives and the lives of others. So some examples might be, you know, publicly acknowledging somebody that's had a major impact in your life. In my case, it was somebody that helped save my life. But I'm curious, Liz, if you were to issue a daily mission for all of our listeners, uh, what would you say to them? There's so many that are tempting. Like it's tempting for me to say, you know, now's a great time to call it the multipliers in your life. But when I really think about what is happening in our lives right now, I think there's this incredible act of leadership that we can offer to people we work with, and that is to help people separate what we know and what we don't know. You know, in times of uncertainty, it's so tempting as a leader, as a parent, to, to project confidence and to like try to say, okay, you know what, it's all going to be okay, and, or to try to pretend like we know what's happening. But I think we do this in tremendous disservice to people around us as we actually create more um, of a, a ripple effect of anxiety and uncertainty. And I think one of the things that we can do in these situations and say, okay, well, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. And I think it gives people a tremendous sense of calm when we say, okay, wait, you know what? I feel like I don't know anything right now, but there's some things we do know. And it reminds me of something that um, someone said once they were describing this physician leader that they had worked with. And, and he said, you know, it was a resident. He said, this, this man, he, he took us to the outer edge of what we knew. We established, what do we know about this patient, about this situation? And we got all the way to the very edge of what we knew. And he said, and then he led us from there by saying, well, okay, well, what data do we need to go find out now? What questions should we be asking? Who are the people who would know? And I think while that may sound complicated, I think it's actually very, very small. Like the thing that we can do for each other right now is say, okay, what is it that we know? 
What can we count on? Okay. Now, what are the things that we don't know? And even if we don't have answers, just being able to delineate what is known now, I think is a gift to people. That's powerful. Yeah, just establish what we know, what we don't know, and get oriented on the path that leads to the exit, family and friends. I love that. And I think if, yeah, and I think if there's anything I've learned in studying um, leadership and not knowing, then in knowing, because when we know, we tend to default to existing patterns, existing solutions, existing ideas. And when we know, we don't really need anyone else. We just draw on our own ideas and we end up sort of dictating old thinking to people around us. But when we don't know, you know, when we really like make that I don't know list, then it forces us to ask questions and be curious and, and find new solutions and innovate. And as leaders, it forces us to draw on the wisdom of the team and to really truly engage people and find new solutions together. And, and so just helping ourselves and helping each other get clear on here's what we don't know and what we need to learn. And then really realizing that power that comes from not knowing. I love it. Liz, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining us today. Chad, thank you so much for sharing so much of your journey, letting me be part of that and in a way that I think will benefit not just me, but lots of people. Oh yeah, my pleasure. And uh, thanks for holding the space. Appreciate it. Liz, we'll hopefully have you back on again soon. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.